The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We're continuing to work through the book of Hebrews. Sermon series is called Never Better. I got so much to do today, I'm not going to re-explain the series. I'm not going to give you a bunch of run-up. We're going to get right into it, okay? So we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be doing the back half of that today, verses 19 through 39. Uh, so if you want to turn there, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10. As I told you last week, the first half of chapter 10 you, you can see what we're stepping into now as, as, as a uh, dividing line. There's been this sometimes repetitive set of argumentation about the superiority of Christ over angels and Moses and prophets, uh, the superiority of Christ's new covenant versus the old covenant. And so, you know, in many different ways with different pictures and, and reinforcing ideas, this author has, has made the case that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. And so if you are in Christ, you've never been better in a whole lot of ways. <laughs> and if, if you're not willing to come to Christ, there are ways you'll never be better. That argument has been, has been made, and, and he'll, he'll pick back up, and there'll be some, some continuation in terms of that kind of exhortation. But today marks a move into some application of what we've been studying now for many months together. So, as I said, verse 19, we're going to read through to verse 39, and uh, <clears throat> God issued a special challenge to me today to try to preach this set of verses in, in, a, in a little bit tighter time frame, because this is one where I could have had everybody in here upset about lunchtime easily, uh, and, and maybe dinner time too. So, <laughs> we're, we're, the Holy Ghost is going to help us though, okay? So, chapter... 10 verse 19 in the book of Hebrews. Here we go. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after, having receiving, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries." Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Praise God for his word. Obviously, I was not making up <laughs> what's going on uh, in the verses today. There's a lot here, um, but there, and, and there's a lot more that could be said that, than is going to be said, but there's also some important summary ways that we need to understand what's being said. So let's go back to verse 19 and work our way through. And I, I'm kinda, I see this in several sections, verses 19 through 21. I, I'm, I'm seeing that as a why, and then 22 through 25 as a what, 26 through 31, what if not, and then back to what and why. So there's this, he's, he's talking about why we should do some things and then what we should do, and then what happens if not, right? And then goes back into what we should do and then ends with why, which I think is just good Holy Spirit-inspired, uh, compelling <laughs> in, in the writing of, of these scriptures. So back to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, some of your translations might say boldness. We have boldness to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus. This is, <clears throat> this is a, he's setting this up with a why. Why? Because we're going to get to where he's going to give us some what, some things that as, a, as an implication to this why, <laughs> we should do these things. But the first thing is, because of what Christ has done, we have something that no one ever could have had aside from Christ, and that is boldness to come into the presence of God. That idea, when he talks about the holy place, he's, he's referring back to the, the temple and, and the tabernacle and that, that place that was reserved for the high priest to go once a year with the atoning blood that was supposed to cover the sins of the people, that, there was one person, the high priest, one time a year that could go in there with much trepidation after going through a very specific set of washings and following all those details. Then they could come in temporarily and visit that place of God's habitation. A major difference here is we're being called now to dwell. Not visit, but to dwell in this place of God's presence. And why? How? The whole thrust of the book. Because Jesus has done something incredibly amazing. <laughs> he has solved the problem of sin that meant there needed to be a veil. And there needed to be the sacrifice of uh, bulls and goats and, and atoning blood. He, he made a once-for-all sacrifice. And, and that thought picks up in verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. There's this interesting connection inspired by the spirit this author makes between the veil in the temple and the flesh of Jesus. Not, that's not a connection I would have made. And, and honestly, even though he made it, I, I, I had to think and pray about what, that, what does that even mean? What, what is the connection? And what we see is it, it's you know, sometimes we, we've, we've heard the story so many times that the, the impact of the thing, <clears throat> it, it loses the power that it should have. But to, to read the historical account of the fact that when Jesus breathed his last, there were earthquakes, the sky changed, and, and literally the curtain in the temple, it, not metaphorically, 
literally split from top to bottom. God in his sovereignty split that thing to let us know the separation it was there to make sure was in place because it needed to be between a holy God and sinful people. We don't need that anymore. Come. And it's interesting that 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 veil was rent. It was tore from top to bottom, much like the flesh of Jesus was torn so that it could be torn from top to bottom. I think that's the connection the author's making here and one that should bring us, uh, if nothing else, to a high degree of gratitude for all that Christ has done and what he went through in order to have us. Verse 21, and since, and so we're still in why, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, I'm not going to get, we've been talking about the supremacy of Christ's priesthood now for many weeks and in many different ways, and so if you haven't heard that, then refer back, but the author has left, left uh, no question about the superiority of Christ's priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, okay? So that's because of these things, okay? What? Now he gets into it, 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. No one in the Old Covenant could have done that. No one could have drawn near, and for sure no one was in full assurance. Again, what are we doing? The superiority of Christ to, to anything else. In any other way we could be tempted to think that we're going to find salvation in the purpose for which we were made. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. We already saw this in a previous chapter. Part of the difference in what Christ has done versus what the old covenant could do is, is not, it's not just a, a covering of sin that gets us technically and legally out of the wrath of God, but what Christ has done takes it farther to where we can actually have our conscience cleansed before God. This idea that he can, he can take that sin and instead of just covering it, he can get rid of it, cast it away. We can come before God with a clean conscience, truly believing that what Jesus has done is for us, that he took what we should have been, he became sin, so that we could stand as the righteousness of God before him. He traded places with us. That's why oftentimes the, the gospel is referred to as the great exchange. He took our sin, he took our punishment, and gave us his holiness and his righteousness. And that's given to us, the, the technical term is it's imputed to us by faith. It's not something you could just go get. It's not something you could work up to. It comes down to, do I trust what God has said. Verse 22 calls us to draw. So what's the first implication of everything that was just said in the first three verses? It's to draw near. Verse 23, what else? To hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So because of everything just said, the encouragement here, the exhortation is, hold fast. And that idea is going to come up again, and I'm gonna, I'll talk about it more as it comes up. But that's the set. So draw near, hold fast, and then verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first thing I'd like to point out to you that it comes from 
this, this description in Hebrews around the idea of us gathering together, the importance of that, the, the problems with forsaking that, the primary orientation of gathering is selfless giving and not selfish taking. There's nothing... Try to read into this the way I know many people think about what church they're a part of, if they're going to be a part of a church, are they going to mess with church stuff. Try to read into what is said here about the gathering of God's people, anything about personal preference, anything about style preference. Where, maybe I just didn't read far enough. For if we go on sinning willfully, no, that's not going to do it. Actually, it's going to get worse for us here in a minute. I'm kind of, you know, I'm easing into it here. Try to read into this any kind of selfish motive when it comes down to if we're going to be a part of God's people in a real way, or I would say even where we're, I mean, how do, the whole idea of church shopping and how we think about what place I'm going to be a part of, and, I, and there's, I believe there's faithful people within the body of Christ who would have different opinions on whether what church you're a part of is a sovereign directive or something that, that you, you know, there's kind of a fence, and as long as you are inside the fence, like it's a faithful church that's preaching the gospel and all of that, like there's choice, you know, so, and that's a big long debate that I don't have time to get into today, but the bottom line is, wh- however you think about that, selfishness and self-focus cannot be the orientation that, that the lens by which we're deciding, am I going to be a part and, and what is that going to look like? It's just, there's, it's not here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see, it's, it's totally selfless and love-motivated in its orientation, the way we think about the gathering of God's people. Um, and that, you know, that whole idea right there could fix so many things that end up happening as, as problems and schisms and ways that the enemy is able to try to steal momentum from the, the, the forward movement of Christ's gospel and the building of his kingdom. Uh, if we could just get that imprinted upon our hearts and act accordingly. So many things. Uh, and, and, and you might be thinking, well, man, that... But isn't, some of it is for me to receive. Yes, it is. But also, Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20 and says, it is more blessed. He said, remember what the master said. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. Remember what the master said. It is more blessed to give than receive. I'm, that's a, that idea, it's a great practice to challenge yourself often with that idea and ask God to help you see how much you really believe it. Because we all have heard it, we will nod our heads because Jesus said it, hopefully, most of us. And even, even if you're not somebody that loves Jesus and follows Jesus yet, you could, you could maybe conceptualize, reach with your imagination to understand how, okay, yeah, I could see how maybe that's true. But it's, <clears throat> friends, it is true. And sometimes you don't get to experience the full truthfulness of something until you walk towards it in faith. Right? If, you, if you stand in a position of, okay, God fully convince me of that to, to the, the nth degree, and then, I'll, and then I'll move towards it, sometimes you are in disobedience. 
Jesus said it, so sometimes even though I may not understand totally how that's true, particularly maybe in a given difficult situation, it is more blessed for me to give than receive. There is more joy in pouring out than pouring in. And the beauty is, here's the thing, because I understand the practical implications and concerns that could come up. Okay, if I orient myself constantly, consistently, and this is not just within the context of the household of faith, this is at your house, this is in marriage, this is in friendships. If I understand the fear of, okay, if I, if I really take the Bible for what it's saying and I orient myself as a servant, I, I, I buy in 100% to the idea that what love looks like is Christ on the cross, that selfless sacrifice is the call of every follower of Jesus. But if I buy that wholesale, how do I not end up getting taken advantage of? How do I end up not getting hurt when, if I'm going to make myself that, that vulnerable and that, that oriented towards the care and concern of others? Well, here's the first thing I want to say about it, which is not great news, is if you orient yourself that way, you will end up getting hurt by somebody. If you're going to be, if you're going to, this isn't the Bible, I think it was Queen Elizabeth said that grief is the price we pay for love. So you're going to have to actually sit down and, and, and think through with the help of the Holy Spirit, the arithmetic on this and understand, okay, if, if my purpose is to love and to orient myself as a, as a servant to all, I have to understand that sometimes that's going to, that, me being that way is going to orient with someone that will want to take advantage of it, won't appreciate it, and, and, and I probably will suffer some pain as a result. But is it still worth it? Is that still the best possible existence I could have to walk in obedience to what God has said I was made to do? Yes. Yes, it is. But the other thing is, so yes, some, some, almost certainly you will experience some discomfort as a result of obedience to Jesus. I don't, if that's hitting you as a big surprise today, uh, you know, maybe this is your first time hearing the Bible talk, because it says that a lot. You know, the whole pick up your cross and follow me thing, like it's, kinda, it's baked into the cake here. Um, you know, we, we, we follow a guy that got crucified, so you know, here's your sign, right? Um, but the other thing is, Man, is there a beauty when you get a group of people willing to orient themselves in humble love and service. And this is one of the things that Jesus said is supposed to make his people stand out from the rest of the world. They will know you by your love one for the other. There's a whole lot of things we end up getting known for that are unfortunate. Let it be said of us that for all it may cost... <laughs> that we're people that walk in genuine love towards one another. And the selflessness that comes with it. So asking ourselves, do you believe that? Very helpful question. Now, when it comes to verses 24 and 25, this idea of not forsaking our own assembly together, uh, people probably assume these are pastor's favorite verses, and most pastors probably assume this is a bunch of people's least favorite verses. So there's this, <laughs> this potential tension baked into the thing. Um, I would not name these as favorite verses of mine, but they're in here, and I'm going to preach them. I'm going to preach them hard. Because I think, because the next, <laughs> the idea that ties in, so the, this author's writing a letter, the next idea after he gives this admonition about not forsaking the gathering of the, the assembly, I, I use the word gathering, no, one translation says that, I can't remember which one. This NASB says assembling, but not forsaking our own assembling together or gathering together. The very next thought 
in this author's mind is, for if we go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer left a sacrifice for our sins, but a terrible expectation of judgment and fire that consumes the adversaries. You know, I, if, if you showed up this morning hoping for a precious moment sermon, you came on the wrong week, man. And thankfully, our friend this morning is precious, and you, that was the soft part, okay? So now I'm here, <laughs> and we're in Hebrews 10. This ain't my fault. I didn't write it, but I'm going to preach it. <clears throat> there are a lot of reasons that people disobey these verses about not forsaking the gathering of God's people. There's a lot of reasons. Some people have been hurt by churches. And I want to say that many times those are legitimate things. I want to say, I'm in that club. Okay? I've seen behind the veil on some ministry stuff that it make you want to puke. So that is real. And I don't want to take anything away from how much healing and help people that experience things like that may need. That's real. And we should be a safe place for people that have experienced that. Uh, but sometimes people being, being hurt by the church is the result of immaturity and offense on their part. That's also true. And I've seen that firsthand. <clears throat> but here's, here's the thing. That's, that is an important consideration, but there is no wiggle room here. Relationship with Jesus and relationship with his people are not a la carte options. When someone asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving people. The admonition before we get right down into assembling is, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You literally can't do anything with that on your own. There's a bunch of stuff in the New Testament you can't do anything with. You have no chance to obey it if you're not willing to understand that loving Christ's body and loving him are intertwined in a way that they cannot be pulled apart. People would like to imagine you can say something like, I like Jesus, but not the church. And that sounds good. And I think there was books titled that and whatever. It's, it's a fairy tale. It's not an option. So now what? Okay, great. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> to reject participation in the life of of the church because of hard situations or bad experiences is like deciding to never eat again because you had one bad meal. Most of you had a bad meal in here before, and most of y'all still eating. <laughs> I, I don't mean anything by that. I'm just saying, since you're upright and breathing, I'm assuming you're taking in nutrition somehow. Another way to think about it, it'd be like cutting off both feet because you stubbed your toe. Why am, I using that? Why am I using those analogies? Because Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep and tend for his sheep. Tend his sheep. The, the Bible teaches that nourishment for the people of God comes through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. That's why I'm talking about food and using that analogy. Why am I talking about cutting off both your feet if you stub your toe? Because Paul, in his instruction throughout the New Testament, grabs this analogy sometimes that we're supposed to function like a body. And, and, and he's really what he's doing... You can miss the humor in the Bible sometimes. He's really making fun of us in the idea that one of us could think because we're a nose, we don't need the eye or the ear, or because you're a finger, you don't need the toes. When he goes into that kind of language, 
he's, he's really poking fun at the idea that we could ever think that that's possible. He's really saying that's ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as it would be to cut off both your feet because you stubbed your toe. Now, I realize sometimes that feels like a legitimate option because stubbing your toe is the worst. I mean, <laughs> you got that one corner post on the bed, like on the outside corner. Anyone ever crunch that one middle of the night? I mean, ooh, buddy. That's the, that, is, that is the worst. I, I try very... Uh, I'm, I'm not one of these preachers that thinks it's like trendy and cool to, to cuss. And so, you know, if, you, if you've been waiting for the week where I'm going to drop some kind of B-bomb or something to like get the people going online, it's not coming. Um, so you'll be disappointed. But uh, man, I'll tell you what. And like areas of greatest temptation to say naughty words, stubbing your toe in the middle of the night. I've got some replacements. You guys got good replacements? That's, you really need that. It's like, Sally Jesse Raphael. That's one of the ones. That's one I use. I used to say, Sacagawea a lot, but I felt like maybe that's offensive, so I'm trying to stop saying that, but I don't know. There's other ones. That's, we'll make that a community group question this week. We'll, we'll share our, our replacement words so we can all build a vocabulary that's, yeah. That's good, ain't it? We need that. Amen. I get it. It can feel like, man, when you've just crunched that toe, cutting both feet off might make sense. You've been hurt by, you've been hurt by people, hurt by the church, man, cutting that off might... I get it. But it doesn't. It just doesn't. So that's, <clears throat> that's one reason um, people disobey these verses. Some misunderstand the main purpose of the whole thing, which we've already talked about is the main purpose is to serve, not to be served. And so if you don't have that right, it's not going to take long. If you're, coming to, uh, the, if you're coming to the the gathering of God's people or participation within, with the body of Christ with a uh, consumeristic mindset, which is very hard not to have, you, we are probably unaware of how completely baptized we are in a consumeristic mindset because most of the way the whole world works that we've experienced all of our life, it, it, it functions on training you to be a consumer. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to have a political debate or an economic debate right now about you know, what, what system would work best. I'm just telling you, all of us have been trained to be consumers. And that very easily can translate into uh, how we would approach participation with the body of Christ. And unfortunately, there are those that understand, particularly Western people are oriented that way, and they're happy to pander to that consumeristic tendency. The problem with that is the call of Christ is to go the exact opposite direction from consumerism to a servant-hearted posture. Not coming to something saying, what do you got for me? But coming to something saying, what do I have to give here? I don't know if it's saying that. I don't know how you could think it's saying anything else. I, I don't know. It's pretty clear. Some have yet to understand the New Testament never says the word saint. It always says saints. I've already kind of said this. There's a little bit of repetition here, but there's a lot of repetition in Hebrews, so I'm fine. <laughs> if you read the New Testament... And come away with the idea 
that solo, lone ranger, doing it on your own, Christianity is, is an option, then you missed big parts. Like the fact that you will not find the word saint singular in the New Testament. It's always saints. This whole thing was designed for us to be done together in service to Christ as a body. <clears throat> now, this is typically the part of the show where people tend to start thinking about exceptions because they don't like the implications of what's being said. <laughs> okay? uh, what are the implications? Let me say it really plain. What are the implications of what's being said? Forsaking the gathering of God's people is sinful. And I realize that, that some pastors wouldn't go that far. I, I don't know how you could not with what's being said here. Particularly with what's about to be said next. We haven't even got to the harshest part of potentially the whole New Testament in verses 26 through 30. We haven't got there yet. Okay? But here's the implication. Forsaking the gathering of God's people is sinful. And so sometimes people say, well, 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 what about widows and shut-ins then? Thinking they've pulled out some kind of trump card. Well, that can't be what that's saying. Because you, you can't be saying that widows and people that are, that are shut in and can't get to the gathering of God's people are sinful, are you? No, the Bible says we're supposed to go to them. Nice try. They're also not supposed to be abandoned or left to try to do this alone. We're supposed to go to them and make sure they're taken care of. That's how that works. Okay, so what else? What else you got for me? Let's see. <laughs> And, and here's the thing, they are not, that's, the language here is forsaking the gathering of God's people. Somebody that is prohibited for some legitimate reason from being able to gather with God's people is not forsaking it. We're talking about really what's going on in your heart about it. Because there are situations where you may not for a time be able to physically gather with God's people. But the real question is, do you want to? That's how you can determine whether I'm forsaking or not. Where does my desire lay in this thing? What, 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 do, I, what do I actually want to happen? <clears throat> Motive matters, and, and forsaking happens in the heart and the head before it happens with the feet. And you might say, well, okay, well, because someone might still be like, okay, well, that widow's thing wasn't it. All right, well, what if, I, what if I move somewhere where there are no churches? And my answer, to, I've heard that before. And someone trying to, because look, I understand this is a harsh implication. I understand there are people that don't like what I'm saying. I get it. And so I've heard people say, well, what if I move somewhere where there's no churches? My first answer to that would be, that escalated quickly. Um, like, what are you going to do, man? Like, you're going to go to the Yukon in a cabin? Like, just to prove that you, <laughs> there's an exception to this rule? Okay, well... I'll, here's my answer to that. Uh, I would have a really hard time seeing how Jesus would call you to live somewhere with no churches unless it was to plant one. Man, I need a gong up here or something. When I get y'all like that, I need to be able to like, boom! Anybody else have any objections? To, I mean, throw them out. Gotcha. And the, I mean, this is a God's honest truth. You can ask my wife and, and people that know me well. <laughs> These verses are why I don't live in a cabin in the woods somewhere. By my dang self. 
Because if I was just doing whatever I wanted to do, that'd be on the list of options, flat out. I mean, I had my family with me, but as far as everybody else, but the love of God compels me. So here we are. And I do love you guys. Okay, so that whole idea, okay, just look at the flow of this thing. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Most of your Bibles will have a little break point there that says something. But in the letter, man, this is the next thing in the flow of thought. For if we go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer left a sacrifice for sins, but a terrible expectation of judgment and fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has let this... Whatever theological escape hatch you may have come up with or heard about at some point that would make you not take this seriously, please throw it away for a second. Just shut that and understand this is the word of God to you. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? If you can read that and not stop for at least a second and go, whoa, I'm worried for you. This is, and, and so here, what's one of the first escape hatches? Well, I don't think that's talking to Christians. Listen to me. The whole thing, for if we go on sinning willfully, do you think he thinks he's a Christian? Okay, in any case, here, I just don't appreciate people taking chunks of the Bible they don't like and going, well, I, I don't think that applies to me. No, man, you've got to deal with this. <laughs> now, a big question that comes up is, if we go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth, what does that mean? There's two major ways to see it. Go on sinning willfully. Is, so he's, is that tied very directly to everything he's talking about above? Is, is, there, is there a direct line there? Or is there this pivot to a more broad sense? That's the question. Is what he's saying, anytime you continue to sin willfully, then these implications are in place? Or is there something specific in mind, this willful sin? And what does that willful sin look like? Now, I will say... As a younger man approaching these verses, I would have been more inclined to see go on sinning willfully after having received knowledge of the truth as kind of this broad statement about any kind of, any kind of sin, besetting sin, whatever, however you want to talk about it. If you, if you continue on in any kind of willful sin, then that's what this is talking about. That's when you've trampled underfoot the Son of God. That's when you've insulted the Spirit of grace. And, I, and solid arguments can be made for that the way of seeing that. <clears throat> and in any case, there, it's not just this warning, but warnings throughout the New Testament that would curb us away from 
deciding, okay, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but here I go, I'm going to do it. Like, that's not to be played with. Whether you think this, that's exactly what's being talked about here or not. I do tend to think that what this is, what this is referencing is, is more specifically what is being talked about above. Since we have a confidence, right, then what should we do? Draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stimulate one another and, and be a part of what God is doing. If we go on sinning willfully after we receive knowledge of the truth, there's no longer left to sacrifice for sins. But terrible expectation of judgment and fire that consumes the adversaries. And then he goes on, how much more, you know, the law of Moses, how much more someone that tramples underfoot the Son of God treats the blood of the covenant as common, unclean, and insults the spirit of grace. Here, what, what, I, what I really think is, is being focused on there is the idea of, of rejecting the gospel. That's, if we go on sinning willfully in our rejection of the gospel. Now, James says faith without works is dead. So you could, you could find out that someone is actually rejecting the gospel, even though it seems like they aren't, if their works don't line up with what they're saying they believe. Okay, so yes. But what's in view here, the best way I can <clears throat> think to, to lay this out is by analogy. Okay, so here's, here's what I really think is being said. And again, I tell you this all the time. Anytime I, anytime I cook up imagination time, and I'm asking you guys to think of an analogy with me, the disclaimer is always, no analogy is perfect, particularly when we're talking about really deep things around like God's character, salvation, all of that. But I think this will be helpful, okay? Who, who knows, is it, I think it's called Volcano National Park or whatever in Hawaii. Is that Something like, so there's volcanoes in Hawaii, you can go visit, right? So let's all put on our imagination hat, we're all going to go there on a field trip, amen. Okay, so here we are. Imagine you're up on the edge of this, this chasm, it's a lava flow, and um, since, you know, it's 2023 and we're our, we are who we are, you're up on the edge, selfie thing, and off you go, right? You fall into this chasm, there's a, there's a little thing of rock it's way, it's, it's way far down, but somehow you land just right, you survive. So here you are, you're in the middle of this lava flow, you're on this little rock, okay? Some, somebody calls the rescue squad, you, you can't even, it's, it's far enough up and maybe the way the cliff is shaped, you know, it bulges out a little bit, you can't even see them, but they're calling down to you. Okay, we're going to throw you a rope. So they throw you a rope, they throw you a harness, tell you to put that on, they're going to try to rescue you here, okay? And then they send another guy down. Another guy repels. So there's somebody at the top, and they send another guy down. He repels down. He says, look, okay, on the top of this rope, we've got the best rescue guy that has ever lived. This guy's never dropped anybody. This guy's super freakishly strong. He's going to get you up there, okay? He's going to, you just, if you put this harness on and you let this guy do what he does, you will get to the top. You're going to be okay. And this guy's going to stay right there with you, okay, as, as he's pulling you up. But then you, you get halfway up, and you start getting scared. You get halfway up, and for whatever reason, you start to not really trust that this guy at the top is going to get you there. And, and to the point where you're, you're like, no, I, I, I can't have my life in his hands. I can't trust him. And you, you, you undo the harness and grab onto the cliff yourself. Oh, and your legs are broke. I forgot to say that. 
just to add, add to how stupid it would be for you to undo the harness and think, I got a better shot getting up this cliff my own than trusting this guy up here. Okay. Here's the analogy. Can you figure out who's who in the story? Jesus is the guy at the top. Who's the guy down next to you? The Holy Spirit. I think that's what it looks like to trample underfoot the Son of God and to insult the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace is there the whole time saying, you can trust him. He's got you. You can trust him. What, what does the Bible say the job of the Spirit is? To make much of Jesus, to point us to Jesus. That's what the Spirit is about doing, the glorification of Christ. He's your helper. He's there to help you do what? Climb up the cliff yourself? Is that what he's helping you do? To help you trust Christ. Isn't that the whole thrust of the argumentation? What does he say? Draw near the sincere heart. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We can hold fast to our confession. Why? Because we're mighty? Because we could do, do anything? No, because he who promised is faithful. That's why we got a shot at any of this. And part of the reason I think that is, that is more particularly in view than this just talking about any broad kind of sins that we could get wrapped up into is because, and this goes along with, you know, for me, what I think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, the only sin I believe God can't forgive is you undoing that harness and saying, no, I got it. Self-righteousness, which is an insult to the Spirit of grace. When you trample under the foot of the Son of God and decide, no, the grace being offered to me by Christ, by Christ, I don't need. I don't believe you. I don't believe I can trust him. That's insulting to the Spirit of grace. I believe that's something of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like. A rejection of Christ's free offer to haul you up. Because you can't do it. I don't know if anybody needs this. The end of the story is, if you unbuckle and grab the cliff, you didn't make it. Your arms get weak, and you're in the lava. The end. Okay? Someone wants to illustrate that, we'll make it a children's bedtime story. <laughs> get with me. I'll give you the licensing rights. <clears throat> Probably not. <clears throat> And, here, and all, look, man, if, if, we jump, if we jump to the end here, why, why am I saying that? Because what, what's the end thought? Verse 39. We are not those who shrink back to destruction, but are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Just before that, he's, he's, he's quoting Habakkuk 2. But my righteous one shall live by faith. This, this is the thrust of the whole book is... It wasn't, I told you this a few weeks ago, and some of you I could tell didn't like it. There was a real silence in the room. It's, you, can't, you can't just say the Old Testament was works-based, or the Old Covenant was works-based, and the New Covenant is, is faith-based. No. Habakkuk, the righteous one will live by faith. Abraham was called righteous by faith. The whole point, a major point of the book of Hebrews is, it's always been faith, man. It's always been that. That's always been from the fall forward, how we were going to have any shot of being connected to a God who is holy and perfect. 
It's going to be because he mercifully decided, if you trust me by faith, I'll count that to you as righteousness. Righteousness that you can't, you can't accomplish. You can't climb the cliff, but if you trust me, I will get you up it. And to not believe in him, to not believe him when he says that and he's done everything he's done to prove that he can back up what he says, he who promised is faithful. Why do you hold fast to this confession? Because he who promised is faithful. How do I know he's faithful? I don't know. Look around. Take a quick tour through the Old Testament. (laughs) See how many times God said, I will do this, and then he did it. And stack up all the times God said, I will do this, and he didn't do it. There's none. Spoiler alert. That's what it looks like to trample underfoot the Son of God. Treat the blood of the covenant as a common thing. To decide it's not enough. It's not enough for me. However you get there, whether it's a lack of confidence in God or it's an overconfidence in your sinfulness, whatever lie you believe, ending up in a place where you're not trusting by faith the gospel of Christ is an insult to the spirit of grace. And part of how all this ties together in the mind of this author is, if you have been connected to God genuinely by faith, if you've experienced the grace of God, that key thing we talked about that makes the difference between forsaking the assembly and not, that, that desire piece, what, do I want to be connected to God and his people? A primary way to know if our heart has really been changed by the grace that God provides in Christ is, like, if you're like, well, I don't, am I, how, do I, how am I sure? One way you can be sure is, even though it's going to cost you, even though people are hard, even though the church is messy, you want to be a part of God's people. You want to be around God's people. And if maybe, maybe you've been a follower of Christ for a long time and you've been through enough church stuff with enough goofy church people that, that your heart has started to get hard, today's a good time to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. When I ask myself the question, do I really want to be here? Am I just here because I'm duty-oriented enough and, 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 and maybe I'm even, there's still some little shrivel of, of me believing if I don't do this, then somehow uh, you, you're going to reject me or is it... Today's a good day. Our friend got up here and talked about digging deep wells of obedience. The Holy Spirit doing that. I thought that was interesting. We did not plan anything together. I don't think our friend knew what verses we were in today. I don't think. No. So you do with that what you will. Amen. That was a good place to say amen. Whoever picked that up. Gold star on your chart. Verse 32, so we talked about why, what, what if I don't, okay, I think that's covered. Now back to some more what, what what to do. Remember, because of everything we've already said, remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches, tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. Again, it's this idea of if I'm going to be running with Jesus, I'm going to be running with his people, and it's going to, it is going to cost me. And our lives are going to be lashed together in a way that is supernatural, that's far beyond just even a human choice to say, yeah, all right, these are my people. We're bound by things that are eternal. We're bound by the blood and the mission of Christ. And so that means 
you can do things like showing sympathy to prisoners. What's it talking about there? People that were imprisoned for the faith. That's who he's talking about. And so he's talking about these people caring about them. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Key there being joyfully. What? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's how weird you can get when your faith and confidence and hope is in Christ alone. You can get to the point where the seizure of your property doesn't have the effect it seems like it should, which is, you know, I'm just, I'm just being totally honest, like initial, no help from the Holy Spirit, just me, just Pastor Vince, natural wiring, you seizure my property, joy is not my response. For me personally, it's also not sadness. It's something more in the neighborhood of rage. You know, I really like when Leonidas called out, come and take them. You know, I can really relate to that whole idea. <clears throat> without Christ. But with, he's with him, he's helped me. He's changed me, the way I see stuff. And, and I know he has for you too. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Like I said, these verses are definitely um, stomping grounds for maybe one of the more common theological debates among Christians. And, and I don't want to get into that today. We don't have time to get into that well, so I just don't want to. But I, I do want to say this. <clears throat> um, you sit here today probably believing one of two things. Either a Christian can undo the harness in the analogy, or if you undo the harness, you were never a Christian. At the end of the day, if you push yourself really hard to follow the logic trail down to the end, you'll end up realizing there's some semantics things that it ultimately really is probably more about that than anything. However, what I don't want you to do is discount the severity of these verses because you've, somebody gave you some theological escape hatch that, as, as if this is not being written to those who love Jesus and are following Jesus, because it is. Now, different, and I'll say this, even people of, of certain theological persuasion that are honest, they'll, they'll, they'll say that. There, there are some that will say, oh, well, don't, that's kind of an extra part in there that's talking to people that don't, don't love the Lord. You don't need to worry about that, believer. That's, that's a real lazy way to deal with how severe this is. I get it. I don't want to... Naturally, I'm not like, yay, let's get in. That's... Woo, sounds fun. You know, terrifying expectation of judgment and whatnot. But we do need to deal with it honestly. And, and however you understand whether a true believer ever can undo their harness or not, the warning stands. The righteous live by faith. The righteous are going to live by grace and trust in Christ. That is, that is the big bottom line of the chapter and the book of Hebrews and the book broadly from Genesis to Revelation. The righteous will live by faith. It comes down to do we trust God? Do we love God? And do we realize the reason we can do any of that is because he loved us first? Boil it all down, that's where you end up.
I would submit to you, he is worthy of our trust and our love. And wherever you are on the spectrum of being convinced of that, I pray you continue to move towards the beauty of genuine relationship with him because that's what you were made for. And anything short of it can be aptly described as destruction. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much uh, for these verses. Though they are heavy, I thank you that you're, you're not a God that uh, is unwilling to speak truthfully and honestly, and you understand that soft words oftentimes create hard people. Sometimes we need hard words to soften our hearts. We are prone, Lord, to wander. We are prone to selfishness, each one of us. That, there is none of us that escapes that temptation. Thank you for the reminder today through your word, by the power of your spirit, that we were made for obedience to you. And that that is not about you being some controlling dictator. It's about you being the God that made us and having the absolute inside track on what is best for us. You know how we're going to have the most joy, how we're going to walk in the purpose we were actually made for. And, and Lord, to the degree we believe that is going to affect the degree to which we do desire to obey you. And for some of us, Lord, desire is the issue today. For some of us, maybe our first love has begun to grow cold. And we, it's not that we're struggling against temptation at that level. We, we don't, we're not even compelled by love to want to obey you today. And Lord, I ask you to deal with each one of us where we are. Thank you that you can by your Holy Spirit. That this word of yours and the power of your spirit, you can, you can find each of us right where we're at. And that your desire is, is to continue to haul us up that cliff that if we don't make it, destruction is certain. We need you, Lord. We can't do this. Please come and continue doing what only you can do in our hearts, not just today, but as we go on from here. We love you, Master. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.